0: Kroger Fresh for Everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
1: Hello, this is Tim Rice. Welcome to episode 41 of my podcast Get on to my cloud. This episode of Get on to my cloud is not about my exploits in musical theater or film or even primarily the record business but about a venture I made into the world of books in conjunction with my author brother Joe and the well-known broadcasters and writers Paul Gambaccini and Mike Reed. I refer to the Guinness Book of British Hit Singles, which the four of us founded in the mid-70s. The publication of the first edition of the work in 1977 led to another nine during the 70s, 80s and early 90s, plus a host of related titles, Dealing with the album charts, separate decades of chart history, the stories of all the number ones, and even quiz books. In short, and there's no way to avoid saying this, it was a staggering success. However, by the 90s, we, or certainly I, had lost the anorak fueled interest we had in the charts, and we flogged the concept back to our publishers, Guinness Superlatives. The series continued until 2006 under the excellent guiding hand of David Roberts. But the fact that no book along these lines has appeared since then, or at least none that are aimed at the general public, tends to support the view that the music charts don't really matter to contemporary music followers these days. Back in the swinging 60s, there was enormous excitement every time a new record made it to the top spot, a feat which often merited national newspaper coverage. Record success was then the starting point, and a number one the golden pinnacle for virtually every career in popular music. Fifty or sixty years later, even a string of number ones passes by gently in the breeze of indifference, in a top-of-the-pops-less world. Nonetheless, the official charts company still churns out top 100s every week for both singles and albums, in addition to charts for almost any other category you can imagine. It must be quite hard not to make the charts these days, even if it's only in the indie vinyl metal Afrobeat crossover charts. It's probably a good thing that the charts don't have the enormous sway they did, as long as the music itself still makes its mark. I'm certainly not implying that the standard of the best popular music has declined. It hasn't. It can't afford to, because recorded sound now has so many more rivals, for the teenage buyer in particular. And that recorded sound is so instantly available, usually for free, that it cannot help but lose some of its exclusive and special appeal, unless it's brilliant. Anyway, enough of my ill-informed theories about the record business these days. Like many pop music fans of my generation, the bestsellers' record charts, especially the New Musical Express Top 30 Singles list, were the perfect accompaniment to actually playing the records we tended to spend as much time studying and analysing the charts as we did actually listening to the music. Radio play for the sort of music we liked was so limited that it was quite an achievement even to have heard everything in the top 30, let alone own selections from it. To have heard more than half a dozen of the American top 20 was almost impossible. Despite, or because of this deprivation, many of us would compile lists of hits, and it crossed my mind on more than one occasion that a book that did the same would have a large appeal. No such tome existed. If you wanted to find out what had been in the charts a year earlier, or how many hits Cliff and the Shadows had had since 1958, it was almost impossible, unless you'd kept profuse notes or kept all your old NMEs. I did both. In 1965, when I was a seriously unpromising law student, articles to a firm of solicitors in London, and really without a clue what I wanted to do with my life, I began compiling a detailed history of the pop charts in my bedroom, going back to the time when I first bought the NME and my first pop single, Singing the Blues, a number one for Tommy Steele at the very beginning of 1957.
2: Watch you do me this away Well, yeah, never, them all like crying all night Cause everything's wrong and nothing ain't right without you You got me singing the blues The moon and stars no longer shine The dream is gone, I thought was mine There's nothing left for me to High over you My family love Like running away Why should I go Cause I couldn't stay without you You got, got to sing this. in the blues Over you. <laughs> them, them, more like <laughs> running away. Why should I go? Cause I couldn't stay without you. You gotta sing the blues.
1: <laughs> the great Sir Tommy Steele and his excellent cover of Guy Mitchell's US original, Singing the Blues. In the mid sixties, my mother, Joan, had become quite a successful short story writer. Her romantic tales were published in various women's magazines and she also wrote amusing articles on daily life, too often for my liking featuring her teenage offspring. And these were taken by The Times, Punch magazine and even by BBC Women's Hour. Thanks to all this, she met a young up-and-coming book publisher and literary agent named Desmond Elliott at a literary gathering and mentioned that her son me, had an idea for a book. Mr Elliot graciously agreed to see me. I arrived at his office in Arlington Street, just off Piccadilly in the heart of London, armed with my lists of everything that had hit the charts since Tommy Steele, which singularly failed to impress him. As Arlington Books, Desmond Elliot was already making his mark in the publishing world with authors such as Jilly Cooper and Leslie Thomas, and he informed me that if he couldn't sell books about what Mick Jagger ate for breakfast, then he was highly unlikely to be able to sell lists of Mick Jagger's records. This was a total non-secretary, in my view. Desmond was not alone then in feeling that rock and pop music was not an art form that could actually ever have a serious history. I knew that many followers of the music of the time would be just as interested, if not more interested, in the facts and figures about performers' work than in flimsy details of their personal lives. The label and number of a hit record was of far more interest to the average fan than the colour of the bass player's underpants. Plus, people like lists. Lists of almost anything sell. But this didn't wash with Desmond. He asked me what else I did, and I told him I just had a song I'd written recorded by a rock group, which I happened to have brought with me. The song for which I wrote both words and music was entitled That's My Story, and the group was called The Night Shift. It's available on my very first podcast. Desmond played it and said he didn't like that any more than my book idea. But he did recommend that I meet a young songwriter he was looking after. He was named Andrew Lloyd Webber, and that recommendation changed my life. My work and good fortune with Andrew put my history of the charts book idea onto the back burner for many years. But it remained something I talked about with my brother, Joe, and of course, by the end of the 60s, rock music and its related disciplines was clearly an art form that was here to stay. Our chart book idea received a major boost when a bright young UK-based American journalist and broadcaster named Paul Gambaccini interviewed me and Andrew about Jesus Christ Superstar in 1971 for the British edition of Rolling Stone magazine. After the interview, Paul and I found we had a mutual fascination with the history of pop. And that we both owned an extremely obscure paperback US chart reference work by a gent named Joel Whitburn. This volume simply listed all the hit singles that had ever reached the American bestsellers, famously known as the Billboard Hot 100. Whitburn's book had no pictures, no commentary, no opinions, no artwork, just a magic list. We were certain that an English equivalent would be a winner, especially if it were dressed up with a decent cover and a few photographs, especially if it did not express any opinions, which would instantly annoy as many readers as they pleased. Facts were all we proposed to assemble. It took us some time to get it all together, but eventually we did assemble all the raw material for the research, every pop chart from 1952, and acquired a fourth author, my old chum Mick Reed, by now beginning to move rapidly up the radio ladder as Mike Reed. We formed a new company, Grr Books, G R R R Gambaccini Rice Rice Reed, with a growling boxer dog logo, and spent more than two years collating the huge amount of information. In that pre-computer era, everything was entered on cards and extremely large handwritten spreadsheets. Joe, by this time, was living and working in Japan, so any contact we made on this or other artistic matters with him in that pre-fax era was usually done by Telex. It was not until late 1975 that we felt able to approach a major publishing company with the idea. We first went to Michael Joseph, as an old school friend of mine was a big cheese there, having had a big personal success with his discovery of the Country Diary of an Edwardian Lady, a mega-seller of that decade. However, Michael Joseph didn't really get it, and we then went to the outfit we should have gone to in the first place, Guinness Superlatives the undisputed leader in the field of reference books. I called them out of the blue and asked to speak to either Norris or Ross McWhirter, identical twin founders of the hugely successful imprint, launched by the Guinness Book of Records in 1955. To my surprise, I was put straight through to Norris, who may well have recalled that Jesus Christ Superstar had featured in the Guinness Book of Records for a while as the biggest-selling British LP of all time. It probably really was the biggest by the end of 1971, though long since surpassed by many others. Norris expressed immediate and great interest in our idea. Our delight was dashed only days later with the terrible news of Ross McWhirter's murder by the IRA. It was at least three months before we felt able to recontact Guinness superlatives, who fortunately told us Norris wanted business as usual, and that our book was definitely still part of their plans. The first edition finally emerged in mid 1977. It proved to be the forerunner of more than 30 best selling books that we authored during the subsequent 20 years. We even topped the best selling book charts on a couple of occasions. Before we called it a day in 1996, we'd sold around one and a half million books, all but about half a dozen in the UK. Once the books got going, they became accepted as the Bibles of the British charts. We were therefore able to host several star-studded gatherings when launching each new edition. One of the most memorable, including a galaxy of chart names, ranging from 50s bestsellers Dame Vera Lynn, Johnny Ray, Russ Conway and David Whitfield, through to 60s idols such as Cliff and the Shadows, Paul Jones and Dave D, 70s icons such as Elton John and Errol Brown, and then comparatively new names onto the scene such as Bob Geldof and Kate Bush all gathered together by us. Kate Bush had recently become the first solo female artist to have written and performed a number one. For another launch, we took over Studio 2 at Abbey Road, chosen because more number one records had been recorded there than at any other studio, inviting all who'd ever had a number one wherever it was recorded. Paul McCartney came to that one, as did, to my particular delight, Julie Covington, not known to be a social animal, whose wonderful vocals on Don't Cry For Me Argentina had given me my first taste of the top of the charts for one glorious week. In America, Joel Whitburn, whose flimsy paperback had proved such an important inspiration to us, has expanded his chart reference book into record research, a veritable empire based in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, that has published over 200 books on American music history as recorded by the best-selling lists that he has traced back to 1890. His works are now lavishly produced, packaged and illustrated, and thus very heavy to take down from the shelf. His website will enable you to find out anything that has even had the merest sniff of the billboard charts, which themselves have been going in one form or another since 1913, although Joel's staggering research goes well back into the 19th century. In my twilight years, I find learning about and then hearing hits from the first half of the 20th century, the half I don't remember in the flesh, as fascinating as recalling the many, many wonderful records of my youth and middle years, and I'm clearly not alone. My spell with Joe, Paul, and Mike as a chronicler of my own era has led me to greater interest in those that came before, even if I've slightly lost track of some of those who followed. When we had our Abbey Road party for artists who'd made it to number one, we invited one special guest who was the most successful hit parade star who never once got to the very top spot. He had more hits than most chart toppers, and he was truly one of the most popular recording stars of his era. To this day, he retains a huge following, and like other well-known Liverpudlian musicians, is honoured with a statue in his hometown. Having the chance to talk to him at our number 1's party in 1982 was one of the highlights of my entire Guinness Books Association. He was a delightful man and a great talent, who saddened me by telling me at that party that he didn't expect to be around for much longer, which I refused to accept. But tragically, he was correct. Here is the unforgettable Billy Fury.
0: so far Seeing you can do just so much, it hurts me so to know your heart's a treasure. treasure. so far away Whoa, whoa, whoa So near Yet so
1: episode 41 of my podcast, Get Onto My Cloud, written and presented by me, Tim Rice, and produced, Comme Toujours, by Peter Holtz.